the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Fussing. This week's episode, Alibi, has opened a lot of eyes. Social media has been blowing up since we dropped this week's show, with tens of thousands of people coming out in support of Jesse Eldridge's actual innocence. Many people were absolutely stunned to hear Jesse's ex-girlfriend, Tammy Autry, come on the show and pronounce his innocence. So in today's Friday follow-up, we're going to hear what you have to say. All right, Bob, let's get right into it. Listener Lisa writes, Hi, Bob and Mike. Has Kirby been in touch at all since the podcast has been on the air and gained interest? I feel it would be such a shame if he doesn't talk as could probably give some valuable information to this case, like who checked the post box and how often. Thanks, Bob and Mike. Keep up the good work. Okay, thanks, Lisa. Uh, The answer to your question is no, Kirby has not been in touch. I really don't think that he's all that interested in talking to me. I'm sure this is bringing up a lot of old wounds for him. When I spoke with him the first time, I'd kind of caught him off guard. I just cold called him on a Sunday and he happened to answer the phone. Since then, I've sent him a couple of emails and haven't gotten any response back from him. So up to this point, at least, I believe Kirby's position is that he just doesn't want to be involved. But I most definitely will be at least attempting to reach back out to Kirby again. Okay, and Stacy writes to us regarding the party Jesse and Troy went to the night before the murder, saying they were all at a party in the complex, so I'm certain that there were other friends in the building. Were they the very last ones to leave the party at 5 a.m., or were there others still there? And also, she asks, has anyone looked further into the murder of the apartment manager? Those are good questions, Stacy. And the answer to your question is, I don't know. I was actually going to ask Jesse your question when I talked to him yesterday, but unfortunately, there was a riot in the prison and the phones got shut off for a couple of days, so I wasn't able to talk to him yet. But I will ask Jesse about that when I hear from him, hopefully later this week. Regarding the murder in the apartment complex, that murder was solved. Apparently, the apartment manager's grandson beat her to death with a hammer. I've looked through the case. It looks to be pretty rock solid, and it seems like the motive there had something to do with some trust money. So that particular murder doesn't seem to be connected in any way with Kiao's murder. However, the guy that was convicted of that murder wasn't caught until months after the offense and months after Kiao's murder. So what we do know is that there was, in fact, a, I guess, brutal killer walking the streets in that neighborhood at the time Kiao was killed. But the big difference between the two crimes is we have a clear motive and a known relationship with the victim in the first case, and we don't know if there was any motive or relationship with Kiao. But that's definitely something I think we should look into. All right, and Jacob asks, how can we rule Troy out as a suspect? Seems to be circumstantial evidence pointing his way. The shirt, struggle with Kiao, Carol's involvement, lewd comment, etc. What are your thoughts, Bob? Well, Jacob, the problem with Troy is that we have to consider where all of that evidence came from. 
And the answer is that it all came from Troy himself. So when we look at the shirt, yeah, Troy said that Jesse was wearing his shirt. But when we dig a little deeper, we figure out why, if Troy is innocent, why he would say something like that. And this is something that a lot of people through email and social media have had a kind of a hard time wrapping their mind around. And that's a question of why would Troy believe that his DNA is on the scene if he had nothing to do with the murder? And the answer to that is a nasty rendition of the Reed technique. When you read Detective Watts' notes and you compare that to what Troy has told us and his testimony and what Carol said and you kind of read between the lines, I personally can absolutely see why Troy would fear being arrested for something that he didn't do. Remember way back, like two years ago, when I had Jim Trainum on the show, and he talked about how false confessions happen. I remember that he said, most people would say I would never confess to a crime that I didn't commit. But Jim assured us that every single person listening, if he held the right gun to your head, you would tell him anything that he wanted to hear. So imagine in Troy's case, and we have to make some assumptions here, but imagine in Troy's case that Watts tells him, we have all this evidence, we know for a fact that Jesse committed this murder. We have his DNA on the scene. And he could have even said that they have witnesses. We don't know what he told him. But from what Troy tells me, Watts told him that they had Jesse's DNA on the scene, but also that Troy's DNA was there too. Now, as part of the read technique, you tend to give people outs, so to speak. In order to get someone to confess, you kind of give them a reason why it's okay. So in Watt's case, he very well may have, and again, I want to point out that I'm. this is an assumption. This isn't exactly what happened. We don't know this. But Watts very well could have told Troy that, look, both your DNA's on the scene. We know Jesse's the one that did it, but your DNA was there too. So maybe was he wearing one of your shirts or something? Because the DNA could have got there if he just took an article of your clothing or something with him from the apartment. So basically, you feed to your suspect the information that they need in order to craft their own narrative that exonerates them. And my personal belief is that that's exactly what happened here in Troy's case. And then add to that the fact that Watts is telling him that Jesse's saying that Troy did it. Basically, what happened is I believe that Troy was backed into a corner where he's told that there's clear and convincing evidence that he was on the scene, but then Watts offers him a way out. But maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was Jesse, and maybe the way your DNA got there, along with Jesse's, is because he was wearing one of your shirts. But the bottom line is that I don't think it's out of the question at all that Watts could have convinced Troy that he was in danger of being convicted for something that he knows for a fact that he didn't do. It's really not that difficult of a process to go through with someone, especially someone who's criminally inexperienced like Troy. Now, as far as Troy as a suspect, there's a few other issues there too. First of all, personally, I don't think that Troy was physically capable of committing this murder. Now, I know that Clementi said that you have people that were unable to control the victim, but in Troy's case, it's not like he was just a little bit weak or just didn't know what to do because he was criminally inexperienced. Troy literally cannot turn his head at all. In order to turn his head, he has to turn his body because of the fusion of the vertebrae in his neck. So when we look at Kiao's murder scene, and it's a very dynamic scene that looks like it took place over a couple of locations, I just don't see, after meeting Troy and hearing everyone else talk about him back then, I just don't see that it's possible for Troy to have done this. He just physically could not have done it. And then one piece of evidence that we do have is Troy's girlfriend, Shauna, saying that Troy was in bed with her that morning, that Jesse left without him, and Troy never got out of bed until Jesse came home. So in Troy's case, if we're looking at him as a suspect, he does have a solid alibi in Shauna. We have no evidence of him being on the crime scene, even though Watts said his DNA was there. We know for a fact that it was not. And we know that because even though one of those hairs was microscopically similar to Troy, DNA testing proved that it wasn't his. 
And then we have the fact that he's just not physically able, most likely, to have committed this murder. So I can't say really at this point that I'm completely writing anyone off, but I will say that right now, at least for now, Troy is really not on my radar as a suspect. I think that Carol's involvement had nothing more to do with anything but money. And Troy got drugged into this mess, and unfortunately, we may have a situation where we had a not-so-honest cop doing the detective work. Tracy asks, did Troy Eldridge have a criminal history? I can't recall if it was ever mentioned. The U.S. injustice system has been hard at work with this one. Is the judge on this case still a sitting judge? Hope not. What are your thoughts, Bob? Okay, Tracy, to answer your first question, the only criminal history I've been able to find for Troy Eldridge was him threatening his sister's ex-husband, David. And we mentioned that a couple of episodes ago. It sounds like from talking to some of the family that there was a conflict during the divorce. Troy was mad. And I believe from what Patricia told me, what ended up happening was Troy slid his tires. But other than that, I don't know of any criminal history with Troy. And regarding Judge Warder, no, she is no longer a sitting judge, but I did recently read an article that she's trying to become a district attorney in another county at this point. So she's off the bench now, but she still is working in the criminal injustice system in Texas. All right, Robin says, I don't live in the United States, and where I live, polygraphs are not used, so I'm amazed to hear so much reliance placed on them, even to the point that if a suspect passes, the police are likely to let him or her go. As far as I can see, polygraphs are mostly just so much snake oil. Bob, what are your thoughts on your use of polygraph tests in the United States, and how does this play a role in Jesse's case? Well, Robin, unfortunately in the United States, polygraphs really only work for the prosecution. So they do things like they did with Jesse. They'll say, okay, well, let us give him a polygraph. If he fails the polygraph, then they'll use that to bolster their case. But if they pass the polygraph, they just throw them away because polygraphs aren't admissible in court in most cases. You also see it done a lot in post-conviction work where you might have somebody like Jesse who's trying to get out of prison and a current DA may say, well, let him take a polygraph test and let's see what happens. For the prosecution, it's a win-win. If he passes the polygraph test, it doesn't really matter for them because it's inadmissible. But if they fail the polygraph test, then they can use that as an excuse to not get behind working to get the person out of prison. But as far as the weight that's put onto the polygraph test, there's really not any. A polygraph test is supposed to be an investigative tool. It's something that police will do prior to conviction to help them determine if they're on the right track. But there are a lot of variables. There's a reason why they're not admissible in court. In Jesse's case, we have Eric Holder doing the polygraph examination, who happens to be a world-renowned expert and one of, if not the best, polygraph examiner in the field. So he's very well respected, and he knows the testing very, very well. And he was convinced after giving Jesse the test that Jesse was telling the truth. But at the end of the day, because there's not a lot of weight put into them, it really doesn't do anything for us. Okay, Philip wants to know, what's your priority here? Exonerating Jesse or finding the real killers? I believe that Jesse is innocent. The answer to your question, Philip, is yes. Both of those are our priorities. So like I broke down a little bit in episode 308, when I take on these cases, I have a four-phased approach. So the first phase is to determine if the person we're working with is actually innocent. So basically, I start the investigation all over from the beginning. I look at the investigation that was already done, and I work through it as, in this case, Jesse Eldridge as the prime suspect. In Jesse's case, after going through that process, I found that there's actually zero evidence of him actually committing the crime, and there's quite a bit of evidence indicating that he didn't. So then phase two is to figure out if he's wrongfully convicted, how did that happen? 
And the reason for that is that if someone is truly wrongfully convicted, you should pretty easily be able to figure out why and how. Unless you have some grand government conspiracy, usually there's a clear mistake or some clear misconduct that will lead to the wrongful conviction. And we were able to do that in Jesse's case without any issue. The next step, like I said, is to work towards Jesse's exoneration, and we do that by breaking down the trial transcripts and the investigation and trying to determine if we can prove that he didn't receive a fair trial. But then the last phase, phase four, which is what we're working on now, is to try to determine who actually did commit the crime. And by doing that, we accomplish two things. Number one, if we can prove who committed the crime, that should be enough to set Jesse free. And also, if we can prove who committed the crime, that will bring the ultimate justice for Kiao and her family by proving who actually did kill her and putting them behind bars. So like I said, the answer to your question is yes, both of those are our priorities. This week, we had a lot of listeners making comparisons between the Jesse Eldridge case and Adnan Syed's case from the Serial Podcast. They talked ineffective assistance of counsel and even making comparisons to Troy Eldridge being sort of a Jay Wilds in this case. Bob, do you see any similarities between Jesse's story and Adnan's story? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities between Jesse's case and Adnan's case. And to be honest, I think there's a lot of similarities between a lot of wrongful conviction cases. There seems to always be a Jay Wilds. There seems to always be a Christina Gutierrez or a Kevin Urich or an Asia McLean. And for those of you that didn't listen to Serial, and I'm sure that's none of you, those are all characters from the Anand Syed case. And the reason for that is somewhat to do with what I was just talking about in the last question, in the fact that if there is a wrongful conviction, you should be able to tell how and why that happened. Well, with modern-day forensics, it's really difficult unless there's a really, really maniacal plot by a police department to wrongfully convict someone. So for the most part, when we have a wrongful conviction, it oftentimes has to do with eyewitness testimony. And I think that the Reed technique is a technique that's overused. And like Jim Trainum said when he interviewed here a couple of years ago, he said that giving people the basic Reed technique training and sending them out to interview suspects without a lot more in-depth training that should follow is like giving a doctor a prescription pad and not giving them a list of any of the side effects of whatever drugs they're passing out. And one unfortunate side effect of using the read technique, especially using it incorrectly, is false confessions or false witness testimony. So what you'll see in many, many cases of exonerations, and I'll point directly to cases of exonerations due to DNA testing, where we know for a fact that the individual didn't commit the crime, you'll find that the reason that most of those people were convicted was based on someone else's testimony, rather than on forensic science. So yes, there are a ton of similarities. I absolutely see a parallel between Jay Wilds and Troy Eldridge, but I don't think that the similarities stop there. I mean, just look back to our Season 2 case with Ed Eights. In that case, you have Kenny Snow was the Jay Wilds. In Carrie Max Cook's case, you have Robert Hohen. Again, just like with Kenny and just like with Jay Wilds and Troy Eldridge in this case, Hohen was threatened with criminal prosecution, and after he was threatened, he changed his story and gave incriminating testimony against Cook. So as we move forward through the years and we pick up more and more cases from all around the country, I wouldn't be shocked at all to find a Jay Wilde in just about every story. Bob, you reached out to our listeners on social media this week asking, at this point, do you think Jesse is innocent or guilty and why do you think so? Let's take a look at some of the feedback. Shannon says, innocent. There's a complete lack of evidence that he was motivated to kill or that he was involved in any way in her murder. Furthermore, when your ex vouches for you even after a bad breakup, that speaks volumes. Sharon writes, Tammy convinced me of his alibi. He's innocent. Crystal says, I'm not 100% convinced of innocence, but I definitely wouldn't be able to say guilty either. There is zero evidence. 
Kate says, I've not heard one piece of evidence that points to Jesse being involved in this crime, and the witnesses were all family with a grudge. Okay, Bob, so there's some feedback on what people had to say to your question, and I feel like for the most part, people are agreeing with you, and they really do believe that Jesse's innocent. Was there anyone, and I was following all those posts until this morning when I started working on the outline, I know that you've caught the rest of them this morning, has anyone in any of those threads said that they thought Jesse was guilty? There were a few people who thought maybe they weren't completely sold on his innocence, but that's it. Right, and that's what I was seeing last night when I was looking through all these. I mean, we got tons and tons of response from that question, and I do want to thank everyone for engaging when we ask questions like that. And I can completely see where they're coming from. Personally, I'm 100% convinced of his innocence, but I can see how looking at this case, you can say, well, maybe he's not guilty, but I can't see how he's innocent because there's no real evidence of innocence. And that's a common problem in cases like this or any wrongful conviction case. It's really, really difficult to prove that something didn't happen. And you're trying to find evidence that just doesn't exist because he didn't do it. But we're going to get into that a lot more in Sunday's episode. Okay, and this message you sort of covered earlier in the show, but I want to read you this one anyway. This one's from longtime listener Nassim, and it shows how a lot of our listeners have faith in you and your vetting process before taking a case, and then also your thorough investigation thereafter. She writes, I don't think you would take a case unless you really thought someone was innocent. But also, there's absolutely nothing that would tie Jesse to this crime, not even a Jolly Rancher rapper with a little reference to Ed Eights there. Bob, can we talk about your process in case selection or investigation methods and maybe a worst-case scenario here? What if one of your suspects ends up guilty? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we do have a thorough vetting process before we take a case. We get cases sent to us daily, all the time, through the cases at truthandjusticepod.com email address, through our regular email address. We get them through Facebook, Twitter. We get letters from inmates in jail. And I go through and I read all of those and I take a look at the cases. And the process that I go through to vet these cases is very similar to the process I go through here on the show, only much more in-depth as we're doing the full investigation in real time. But the way I vet these cases, I look at the person's claim of actual innocence. I always want them to try to explain to me how they were wrongfully convicted. So phase two plays a big part in that. If someone was wrongfully convicted, we should be able to know how or why that happened. So when people send me letters and say, I was wrongfully convicted, I didn't do this, and I ask, well, how did that happen? And they have no idea, or they have some crazy, grandiose story about how it happened. Now, sometimes those stories are true, but if I can't connect the dots pretty quickly as to how we got from an innocent person landing in jail, then typically I'm going to set that case aside. And that may sound a little bit cold, but you have to realize we have so many of these cases coming in, and we can only cover one at a time. And the reason we only cover one at a time is because what makes a difference in all these cases, cases like Edward Eights and now Jesse Eldridge, even Anand Syed, is we do hear what's never been done before. When all of these people were convicted, just like anyone else who was convicted, they were one case on the docket of a prosecutor of hundreds or thousands. And they're also just one case of many that were on the docket of the defense attorneys. So what's never been done before is to have a team of people, we have Mike and I that are in this office 50 to 60 hours a week working specifically on one case, analyzing every document, every photo, making phone calls, committing all of our time to this case. That's never happened before. And then we also have the added resource of adding hundreds of thousands of listeners who are helping in any way that they can. So there are so many eyes on the cases that we're working, it's almost impossible for something to slip through the cracks. But with all that being said, after a thorough vetting process, when I start reporting on a case on the podcast and getting all of you involved, usually at that point, I'm not 100% convinced of the person's actual innocence. 
I won't start reporting on a case unless I think or believe that they're innocent. But really, that's when the process starts, is when I start reporting to all of the listeners and start engaging all of them. And the answer to the big question is, worst case scenario, what happens if we take a case and the person ends up being guilty? Well, hopefully that never happens, but if it does, the name of the show is Truth and Justice. I'm not going to hide that from you. If I were to uncover evidence tomorrow that indicated that Jesse Eldridge was guilty, I would report that to you. And that's actually a warning that I give to everyone when I start working on their cases. I tell them that once I start doing this, I'm going to dig and dig and dig, and I'm going to find every piece of evidence that was never found before, and I'm going to report it. And so I warn these people, if you actually did this, you probably don't want me to take your case. Because if I find the evidence that points to your guilt, I will report it, and that will destroy any chance that you have at an appeal. And as I've mentioned on a previous episode before, I actually have had one person bow out and say, never mind. But to answer your question, Mike, that's what I would do. If we came across a case and as we investigated, we found out that they were guilty, I would report that they're guilty to you. We would drop the case and move on to the next one. There's plenty of people waiting for us to help them. And so I'm not going to dedicate my time and resources to helping someone that's actually guilty of the crime they were accused of. Okay, thanks for clearing that one up. We also had a listener, Ricky, ask, where is Jesse in the appeals process? And this directly ties into a comment I read from the fan page where listener Jeff writes, worried about this one from the beginning. It's so old, and I don't see how relief is going to occur. Serial with Adnan, Undisclosed Podcast with Joey, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, with Kenny and Ed. I need one of those to actually come to fruition and see someone walk free. Sometimes I question what we are doing here and feel a bit hopeless. I think Jesse is likely innocent, and I can't see he had a motive, but believe the real killer will likely need to be found to have any hope. Bob, what do you think about this? Okay, to answer the first question, where Jesse's at in the appeals process is he has never filed for post-conviction relief. After the trial, Jesse went through his direct appeals, but after that, nothing has happened. 20 years have gone by. And the reason for that is you only have a right to attorney in the United States up through your direct appeals process. Everyone has the right to write a writ of habeas corpus and file for post-conviction relief, but what you don't have the right to is an attorney. So if you're a person like Jesse who doesn't have the financial resources to hire an attorney, you're really up the creek without a paddle. And that's why when you read the stats about post-conviction relief as far as the percentage of them that are actually successful, it's so incredibly low, less than 1%. And the reason for that is that a lot of those habeas corpus claims are made without an attorney. Jesse and I have talked about this when I asked him why he never filed a habeas claim, and he said this because he couldn't afford an attorney. And actually, shortly before Allison and I got involved in this case, he was actually working with what he calls the jailhouse lawyer. These are the guys that are in prison. They call them writ writers, guys that have spent a lot of time studying in the law library, and they help other inmates file their paperwork for appeals or post-conviction relief or things like that. But Jesse was considering having one of these guys do it for him. And also part of the reason why Jesse's never filed any habeas is because, as he said, along the way, a few people have come in and said that they were going to help him. He's gotten his hopes up a few times that someone was going to get an attorney involved, and then they'd eventually just disappear. But the good news for Jesse is, is that in the state of Texas, you only get what's referred to as one bite at the apple, meaning you only get one chance to file a writ of habeas corpus. After that, your case is officially dead unless you can come up with some newly discovered evidence, like we have in the Edward Aids case. In Jesse's case, because he's never filed a writ of habeas corpus, we're far less limited in what we can do for him. So hopefully that answers your question, Ricky. And as far as Jeff's comment, I completely understand that it's frustrating. It's frustrating for me too. But you have to understand that the wheels of justice do not turn quickly. 
So while it seems like we haven't accomplished anything, think back to what we actually have accomplished. In Anand Syed's case, yes, he's still sitting in prison right now, but his conviction has been thrown out. We're just waiting on an appeal right now. I mean, that's huge. Again, we're talking less than 1% of cases where post-conviction relief is actually effective. And in his case, it was. His conviction was vacated. But now it's just a waiting game to go through the process. And in Edward Aid's case, I'm very confident that Ed's going to be set free, but it's going to be a waiting game. At this point, Smith County has agreed to allow us to test all of the DNA in the case. This is evidence that was never tested before. So remember, we have things like the skin cells underneath Elnora's fingernails. The basic DNA analysis on those fingernail clippings back in 1993 showed that most likely there are two different people's DNA under her fingernails. One set of DNA is Elnora's and the other is unknown. So because of the work that we're all doing here together, Ed has a real chance to go home. And there's a lot more to his case than just that. But Ed's case was dead. He had already gone through his habeas. He was done. But because of all of your involvement, we were able to find all this newly discovered evidence and get his case reopened. But again, there's going to be a bit of a waiting game here. Now in Jesse's case, actually I believe that Jesse's case may move faster than either Adnan's or Ed's case. Because with him we don't have to jump through the hoop of convincing a prosecutor or a judge that we have newly discovered evidence. We don't need that in his case. So the best I can tell you, Jeff, is hang in there. We're making progress. We're making leaps and bounds, actually. But the process just takes time. All right, that's it for this week's social media. And thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Again, this is such a big part of the process, and we really appreciate it. So with that being said, let's take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and we'll get right to the voicemails. Okay, Bob, you pretty much answered most of the questions from the voicemails that I wanted to play here today, but I did want to play this voicemail from listener David, who is responding to your question on social media. Hi, this message is for Bob Ross. My name is David Faulkner. I'm from Wheaton, Illinois. My wife, uh, Megan, and I are big fans of the podcast. And to answer your question, I do believe that Jesse is innocent. I think he was set up. I'm pretty positive at this point that my theory is he was set up by Troy because of the whole Jesse slept with his ex thing. So I definitely think he was set up. It's really unfortunate and definitely hope that we can get some justice for Jesse and for Kiel and her family as well. Thanks, guys. So again, not much of a question there, but I just wanted to play that so that everyone in the Truth and Justice Army knows that we're paying attention and going through all of the social media and voicemails and definitely having a discussion on those topics. Right, and thanks, David, for that voicemail. And the voicemails really are a resource that I hope a lot of you keep using. Just to reiterate, our voicemail number is 269-224-2833. And every week for these Friday follows, we go through those voicemails for the show. And it's a great way for us to keep connected with you. And we love hearing from you, the listeners, rather than just having us read what you have to say. So please take advantage of the voicemails and the future Friday follow-ups. And thanks again, David. All right, and this last voicemail comes from Bailey in Indianapolis. Hi, Bob. It's Bailey. Loving the podcast. Just started with season three. And one thing that was mentioned earlier in the podcast, a couple episodes ago, but me to call you about, was that Jesse had told his mom that the necklace is there and that necklace wasn't actually missing. Uh, one thing I've been curious on is if Kenneth had checked when that jewelry was checked. Cause I'm, you know, thinking it's obviously not Jesse. However, maybe that key could have possibly been used to gain access to the house and drop the necklace back off. I, 
don't think it's very likely, but it is a possibility and I haven't heard that theory or know when the jewelry was checked, if it was after the key had been found or if it was before then. That would explain why the key was delivered to the proper house and all that and would be the killer again. Now, again, why they would drop it off, good question. But just, yeah, just wanted to throw that theory out. Loving the show. Have a good one. That's a great thought, Bailey, and I love the outside-the-box thinking. But if the necklace was returned by the killer using the keys, well, number one, that would be some crazy post-defense behavior, but let's not rule it out. But it would have had to have been done a long time before the keys were returned. If memory serves correctly, Kenneth found the necklace later that night or the next day after Kiao was killed. When he initially talked to Royster, it was at his work and then down at the police station. It was hours before he actually got home. And at that point, he had told Royster that she always wears this necklace. He never thought that it was missing. Royster just asked, what does she typically have on her? And Kenneth told him that all she ever carries is her keys and the handkerchief, and she always wears this Buddha necklace. So Kenneth had just assumed that she was wearing it that morning. But after he got home, it was either that night or the next morning, he found the necklace in her jewelry box. So if the keys and the necklace are tied together, then it would mean that the killer went into the house with the key, put the necklace back, kept the key for a week, and then returned it. And if I'm correct in thinking that the necklace was found that actual day, that would mean that the killer came back in and did that while Kirby was still at home. But great thought. Love the thought process, Bailey. I love how you're digging through the details. Keep it up. And that's all we've got. I think we've covered everything. Great. Well, once again, we want to thank all of you who have participated in the Friday follow-ups, this one and the ones before. Remember to keep sending in those thoughts and theories every week. Use the hashtag with episode and the episode number on Twitter or Facebook. You can email us at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And please take advantage of the voicemail system. We want to hear your voice. Again, that number is 269-224-2833. Anytime after the episode drops up until Wednesday morning, we're still taking voicemails to use on the show. But for now, that's it for this week's Friday follow-up. And make sure you tune in on Sunday as we begin our investigation into trying to figure out who actually killed Kiao Go. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating our logo for the Friday follow-ups. Thank you, as always, to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And a big thanks to Chris Brinkley of sylviaconsultants.com for creating and maintaining our website. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
Let's start the show out today, Mike, with 42 seconds of silence. How's that grab you? As the kids learn nowadays, that would be four sets of tens and two ones. Put it onto a grid. Stupid. Common core. Did you write me an introduction? No. Oh. Never do. And I'm your host, Bob Ruff. I don't like that. Listener Lisa writes, hi, Bob. Too fast. All right. <laughs> right away. Right away. Saying they were all at a party in... So I wasn't able to talk to him, so just f- it, leave the first one. Okay. Right? Yeah. Solid. Good stuff, Bob. Yeah. You impressed? No. What do you mean you're not? That was some of my best work. Yeah, I don't know about that. I was rolling. Tracy asks, did Troy Eldridge that have was a... so weak. Why? Look at you. Look how tiny those little sound waves are. <clears throat> Be a man. What are you, a man or your mouse? I'm a man, Bob. <laughs> Let's let me, hear it. Let me just read this, okay, yeah. so we can keep going with the day. That'd be great. Thanks. What a Debbie Downer. <laughs> they talked ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, they talked ineffective assistance of... This is going to be great. So that was like your question. That was me. That wasn't leaving like a that listener. That was a summary like you told me to do. Right. You killed it. You're an interviewer now. In the big show, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even skate with a straight this face. So stupid. <laughs> <laughs> na 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 that was well done on your part. I know. That was probably the single best exa- question that I've ever asked you yeah, on the phone. That's exactly what I'm looking for. A conversation between me and you. Well, it's really not one because you talk, and then we turn off your mic, and then I talk, and then we turn off my mic, and then we, we but, go back and forth like that. That's only because of my booming baritone. I can't have two mics on at the same time. Sounds like an echo. Right. Big voice. Okay. Big fella, big voice. I like your style. Bob, you reached out to social medias this week. Mm-mm. <laughs> There was a complete lack of... Oh, I was doing so good. Let me do it again. Wait, I wanted to say a better way to cook. I was, I was just feeling it. I always say, I, I always say a better it way was, to cook. I thought you know, it was my turn. You got to talk through that whole ad. People like it when I say that. You talk the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you can say a better way to cook. <laughs> but however you do it, stay engaged. Scratch the button. I f***ed that up. <laughs>